Hey, Larry. Hi, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? Oh, I've had the most horrible morning. Really? I have to tell you something. I'm absolutely terrified of needles and I had to have a blood test today. Uh, and I went for the blood test today and it was really, really painful. But then after it, after the blood test, they gave me this jar and said, fill it. And I said, well, what do I fill it with? And I said, what do you think you fill it with? So I realized what I had to do. But I, I then had to go, couldn't do anything. I had to, and it's too much information. I drank lots of water and I, here I am today uh, and I want to forget the morning. So tell me about the guest. And I hope it's, you know, I hope it's uh, a good guest today, which I'm sure it will be because you've, you know, organized it. <laughs> well, our guest is a good guest today and hopefully that will allow you to have a great rest of your day. Uh, our guest is Charles Rodenkirch and I think you know him from the past. Yes, yes. I, I, I know him, but not very well. Just, just a couple of programs. I, I don't think I've seen him for a couple of years. So, Yeah. So what Charles does yeah, Charles. is he's a systems neuroscientist. And what he does essentially is he works on parts of the brain and how it connects with the rest of the body. So his product is a startup called Sharper Sense. And what Sharper Sense is, it's a uh, neurostimulation patch that the user will wear on their neck and it connects to their brain. Wow. So in layman's terms, I know it's very complicated. This patch will be worn on the user's neck, and what this patch does is it activates a natural sensory-enhancing mechanism that stimulates the brain, and it promotes mental acuity. So it really kind of advances. I'm not sure my mental acuity will cope with this today. But well, maybe you'll use one in the yeah, future. Yeah, I think I'll try it. All right, okay. Well, I hope he's going to be able to explain it very clearly, but uh, yeah, it sounds really interesting. Yeah, and I can't yeah. wait to uh, have him on for you to speak to. Yeah, okay. Let's bring him on. Yeah, bring him on. Charles, it's really great to see you again. So welcome to our podcast. And, uh, and I'm good to catch up with you because we've worked at Cornell together on, on, on some of the sessions. So I haven't seen you for absolutely ages. So bring us up to date. Happy to. And first of all, thanks for having me here today, Larry. Uh, really happy to be here. And uh, like you said, it's been a pleasure to work with you uh, over a couple of years now since we first met at Cornell Tech. Uh, so Sharper Sense is neuromodulation technology that enhances your sensory acuity while worn. So in exact, it's a neural stimulation patch that you apply to the left side of your neck. It stimulates a nerve that projects into your brain. And we can use this as nerve as an access point to alter your mental state in a way that enhances the clarity of your vision, hearing, and touch. This technology is spun out of my doctoral research at Columbia University, where we're investigating the brain's natural ability to enhance your senses when you're attentive and alert. You can focus on a voice in a noisy crowd and it becomes clearer. You can focus on details in an image and the features jump out. Uh, we were very curious what allows the brain to produce this seamless enhancement and then figure out ways we could drive this on demand, which we're now commercializing as Sharper Sense. So can you give me an example of somebody who has got a, a, a disability? hearing, you know, disability, um, speech or, or whatever, in, in simple terms. Because again, one of the interesting things that I found about the, the startup community, they understand so well 
what they're producing and so passionate about it. But we have investors listening and they're always wanting to know how big the market and we'll ask you these questions. So can you give me a picture of a person and what their disability is and how that has helped them? Yeah, happy to talk about that. And maybe I can back up a little bit even more to talk about you know, what neuromodulation technology is and, and what we're trying to really replace. So, Yeah, please do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My background is in brain-computer interfaces and uh, specifically working on neurostimulation types, so writing information to the brain or altering mental state. Um, and we're using this technology now, the field, to create what we call bioelectronic medicine. Um, and this is something that used to be called electroceuticals before that uh, fell out of favor and the idea is that we can replace pharmaceutical drugs that work via a chemical pathway to alter brain state in beneficial ways with instead electrical energy or other forms of energy that allow us to uh, activate brain regions with much more accuracy as far as spatial and temporal resolution. And this allows us to drive very unique effects and also allows us to eliminate some of the side effects that are uh, naturally occurring with drugs. So... A lot of people are familiar with psychostimulants like uh, methylphenidate, which is commonly known as Ritalin. Uh, drugs like these are able to enhance your brain performance, but also have a lot of negative side effects, things like uh, inability to sleep after taking the drug, uh, no ability to control the time course after ingestion, and uh, things like anxiety and cardiac risk due to activation of other regions untended. Um, with bioelectronic medicine, we can be much more precise uh, to eliminate these type of issues. And with our technology, this enhancement of sensory acuity uh, has a lot of different applications. We did some of the original research at Columbia, was funded by DARPA's Defense Agency. Uh, we did an accelerator with NBC Sports looking at helping esports athletes and as well as athletes in the field. Um, but after a lot of customer discovery, which I agree is really essential for building a successful startup, we're first using this for a clinical application, which is helping adults better understand speech over background noise. We call it the Larry test before we do this. If Larry Gould understands what you're talking about, you know, then anybody can. And I kind of get the gist of what you're talking about, but can I put it in sort of simple Larry terms? So, for example, you have a child and, and Ritalin is very, you know, it's a very effective and also got lots of side effects you're giving this child child a drug or, you know, a grown-up a drug, uh, and it, it, there's a lot of consequences with taking that drug. And what you're saying, I can stick a patch on my neck and I don't need Ritalin. Is that too simplistic? Somewhat simplistic in that we're driving a sub-effect of what Ritalin does. So Ritalin increases different neurotransmitters or neurochemicals in the brain, uh, the availability of these that results in an enhancement in the information transmission or processing in the brain. Um, and we are tweaking just one of those, specifically norepinephrine, which we can drive specifically through a nerve that we're stimulating in the neck, the vagus nerve. Um, but at a high level, uh, that's relatively correct. Okay, so one of the um, challenges for people who have got highly complicated technical products to go to market is that investors, many investors, just don't understand them. Now, of course, you will um, appeal to investors, who, of course, who are in your sort of uh, market. But 
it is a bit of a shame that I see that many uh, startups who have this complex offering aren't good at translating into clear and simple into clear and simple language, and so therefore the people like that just don't get it and move on. So, how are you finding? What? What? what how? Tell me about your potential investors and investors, and how how have you dealt with the investment side? Because again, we see from the people who've got the really technical things, they're brilliant at building it, but not terribly great at selling it. How are you doing with attracting investors? Yeah, so maybe I could back up a little bit more and also touch on uh, go-to-market and, like you said, taking this technology from something that's complex to uh, applying it to an application where we can deliver a simplified value proposition that's understandable to both the customer and potential investors. And for us, that is uh, what we find the largest unmet need in hearing care right now, which is speech over noise comprehension. Uh, right. And we see a very motivated beachhead for this among older adults. Uh, one in three older adults have some form of hearing loss, and even mild hearing loss doubles your risk of dementia. Uh, hearing aids do a good job about addressing damage to the ear by amplifying volume, uh, but they do nothing to address the co-occurring impairment centrally that occurs within the brain with age. As you get older, it's harder to do things like focus on someone's voice over background noise to bring out that clarity. And so uh, last year, a survey was done with, even with latest modern hearing aids that have noise suppression technology. 28% of users still struggle with background noise. Um, this is a group of over 2 million older adults in the U.S., which we think are very motivated because they've already shown willingness to wear a visible device to treat this problem and they're still not being fully satisfied. Right. Okay, so you just did some said something that made me want to call you after this uh, after this session. And it is as you get to a certain age, you're always frightened about forgetting things and dementia and things like that. The very, very fact that you said that because you don't hear so well, you have a greater chance of having de uh, dementia. That to me is like, I would think, oh my God, I want to invest in that. It's those points that I'm finding with the people who come from very technical backgrounds, the sales points. So I would like to know sort of three examples for people like me who are not that bright, why I would want to invest in you so that I would really understand it. So what happens in, a, in, in other environments uh, where people do know what you're talking about, you're fine. But what we're finding with many of our very, very brilliant um, inventions that they're not being successful because they're not sold right. So I'm trying, sorry to put you under the pressure here, but I would like to sort of, that that really is a huge turn on for, for people to know. And how does it fit? How much would it cost? How will it be available in, market, in the market? Can you talk about that a little? Happy to go into that. And uh, I think I was going to, make a comment on the fact that you said, uh, I think technical founders often are much more familiar with the limitations of their knowledge of their technology at the moment. So things like uh, long-term being able to, let's say, potentially stave off dementia by enhancing seniors' ability to communicate. This is something that we're really excited about. We're working to start chronic long-term studies and animal models of things like Alzheimer's, and we think it has a lot of promise, but we don't have all the data there to be able to firmly claim that. So something that we hope to expand in the future. But what we can show today, and we have shown in our pilot clinical studies at Cornell Tech, 
is that we can improve older adults' ability to understand words over background noise. We can show a significant enhancement of this speech comprehension. Um, and talking to older adults, we see them using this in a variety of ways to allow them to comfortably and confidently engage in social interaction, oftentimes in public situations that have noisy backgrounds. Yeah. So oftentimes we hear from older adults that they have a weekly social event, something like a brunch or a, a group gathering that they get together for. And we've interviewed older adults that have stopped attending these because it's too noisy and it's too embarrassing for them to ask people to repeat themselves or even more embarrassing when they might respond erroneously to a question because they don't hear it correctly. And so we think that is a great opportunity. And we believe we, we're we going to take this technology through uh, a medical pathway. So there's a lot of noise in neuromodulation, no pun intended. And we think the best way to show and build upon the really strong science that underlies this technology is to bring it first through a clinical clearance. And we believe based on our pilot clinical study data, we can get FDA clearance to treat symptoms of age-related hearing loss, specifically this difficulty in speech and noise. And in that format, we could be sold then through hearing care clinics uh, that employ ENTMDs, the type of doctors. Sorry to come in again here. I'm talking again, again, we're here, as I mentioned, to understand what's outside the the, uh, entrepreneur world people are thinking uh, and listening to. Um, When the investors, from the research we've done, we say, what's the one question that's going on in your head as you're listening to somebody making their presentations? What is the one, what was in your head mostly? And they say, majorities say, how do we make money from it? 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 Now, we've been talking for quite a while, and I'm like quite excited about the Ritalin bit, about the fact that it might help with my, my dementia, and quite excited. But I'm not yet excited about how, if I invest in your business, that I'm going to become, you know, get money, get good return on my investment. Could you comment on that? Yeah, yeah, happy to talk about that. And uh, that'll tie in a little bit into the hardware that we're packaging this technology. And it's really uh, could be made into different hardware formats, durable patches, or baked into things like headsets or hearing aids long term that would have a stimulation lead. Um, but as a first model, we're going to make uh, a non invasive stimulation patches that can be made inexpensively enough to be a daily disposable. So at scale, we can produce these patches for less than. Or, or around a dollar, and we believe we can sell them for much more than that. Uh, don't want to say a price here and record it in history, but uh, we think, you know, drive a healthy margin on that. And each of these patches lasts about a day uh, before the battery and the adhesive will wear so off. So there's an ongoing income coming. It's not just send, selling something. You've actually got the oncoming income from the from the patches. That, that's Again, that's a ding, you know? Yeah, yeah. Give me more dings. I want some more dings. I'll give you some more detail on that too. And, (laughs) you know, for us, that type of uh, ongoing revenue, we didn't design these patches to be disposable to produce more revenue, uh, although that is a positive side effect for the business. Um, Really, we we designed them that way to be incredibly easy for older adults to use. So we want a technology that has no charging, no maintenance, uh, something that's closer to a pharmaceutical experience where you can trial it without having to buy a large, expensive upfront device. Um, and when you're using it, know that it's going to have a very reliable effect. 
Right. Okay. Tell me about fundraising. How much of your time is spent on fundraising? And if you could also help, again, our community, people who are, are startups or considering being startups, tell us about what it feels like to actually have to make a presentation. Give us an idea of how you approach that. That would be really, really interesting and really helpful. Yeah, happy to talk about that. And I think, you know, as a CEO, fundraising is something that I'm always thinking about because if you're not actively fundraising, you're likely preparing for your next fundraise. And if you think about a lot of different things that can be really the lifeblood of a startup, I've heard other people say, you know, oftentimes that's the employees, but how do you keep the employees around? Well, you have I, to have have to, I have to stop to reemphasize what you say, which is brilliant. You're saying that always thinking about it, either you're doing it or not doing it. Again, a great deal of startups are saying, let me get the science right. Leave me alone. Let me get the science right. Once I've got the science right, then I can start fundraising. What do you say to that comment from them? How do they fix it? You know, how do they fit it in? Yeah, yeah. I think um, that's a classic uh, opinion people have. And even I had coming out of academia. My background's in engineering. I had a uh, small cell phone repair startup and worked for Columbia Tech Ventures. So it was a little more rounded out. But in general, you come out of engineering and you can see exactly where the technology needs to go. You know where you want to take it. So it's very easy to focus on that. And I think also a lot of times you come out of a very... Uh, academic background, you, you don't have an idea of all the other tasks you need to commercialize this technology. So I think that, you know, even early on, when you're still doing research, let's say, if you're a, a PhD thinking about spinning out a company, it'd be, we'd be better off starting to think about these commercialization goals, talking with things like clinicians, if you're in the medical space, for example, while you're doing the research and starting to break yourself of that habit of only focusing on the technology because long term, there's so much more to a business beyond just the product uh, that is essential to being able to make a successful business. Things like getting market access, regulatory, reimbursement. What does your end user actually need? What are they capable of actually paying for? What will they pay for? Um, these type of things are just as important in the end as the product for success. And yet people... You not do not uh, see people are ignoring those those very good questions you you've given and and that I just want to point that out that people um, raise money they raise money and often they raise money from from family and friends and uh, people who you know admire them and admire what they they their ideas are but it is about from the beginning I am suggesting correct me if I'm right. From the beginning, surely they should be thinking about how will we make money on this product or service. And I suggest anybody who is listening today and who is supporting, uh, who is investing or who is thinking of becoming a startup, think about that side because this is the part, this is the question that the reason why that the majority of startups fail because they don't think about the money. They don't think about the sales pitch. They don't think about how they're going to do it. And they don't like the name, the word, the S word, sales and selling. So tell me about you and your approach and how you're involved and how you prepare yourself for a, for a sales pitch, for a, a sale. How, how, what, what suggestions and advice have you got, Charles? Yeah, yeah. So 
maybe before I jump into what I do now after you know running this company for three and a half years, my setup's a little bit better. But I would say, you know, a comment too, just to talk about people out there that are thinking about starting a company. I would, and, and again, take all my advice with a grain of salt. I think there's far too much survivorship bias and uh, startup advice. But uh, what I notice is that when you have an early idea, that's a great time to start talking to the VC groups. Uh, you can come out without a polished deck and with a rough idea and get a lot of feedback and insight into what those VCs are interested in at a time when you're still very able to pivot easily into these different applications. And that can be really invaluable. And I think there's a thing where, you know, once you come out with a polished pitch deck and a business plan, these investors are comparing you to other companies at that stage. And so if you don't, you know, if you go right to that, you kind of miss this uh, earlier period when you have this little more freedom to be not so judged and to gain a lot of insight in, in what the investors like. Um, now, and fast forward that I've been at this. Uh, By the way, I have to say that is just brilliant advice. And I, I just wanted to, <laughs> to make sure that everybody actually got that. And of course, it's the fact that when you pe- ask people for help and not at that stage, asking them for money, asking them for advice, they are very much more open and honest, and not trying to catch you out and help. And so I just really want to emphasize it because I'm seeing so much that people don't look at any market research or speak to investors to see what they think. So that was that's brilliant. Thanks for that, Charles. Sorry, I interrupted you. And yeah, then to talk about today, you know, I think uh, I originally went into engineering, let's say, there's not too much social interaction. You don't expect that you're going to be on a lot of cameras, let's say. And and so it's yeah. been a surprise. And something you really have to get used to is being really comfortable networking. And I think, you know, you go into a pitch call and you try to run it like a sales call that comes off very disingenuous and is, you know, no one wants to be sold something. But if you, you know, come into these calls and you're trying to make more of a personal connection, trying to, you know, interact with the investor and learn what he wants to talk about, what he's interested in, instead of just trying to jam your pitch deck down there uh, what, and convince them to sell them something. I think that goes a long way too. And, and really, I've heard, you know, there's two ways to describe interaction with in- investors. Some people are what they call dots, which are, you know, they'll reach out at specific points in time and say, hey, we have a raise now, and this is your opportunity to... Tell explain a raise. A raise. So, uh, you know, they're trying to raise a set amount of capital, um, yeah. usually triggered by some positive progress. And then will you be using that capital to uh, get to the next goal? Um, and so that type of uh, dot raising, I think, is a lot more difficult. If you have something that's very exciting or is well-timed with what's uh, flashy in the market, it can work. Um, but what I find works better for us is what people have referred to as more of a dash method with the ideas that you're interacting with these investors multiple times uh, across a long time period. And they can not only you know, have a glimpse of what your technology and company is now, but also see how it's progressing over time. And I think that is more convincing uh, than most other options to be able to really show someone that this company is worth investing in. Again, the message to people out there who are investing, find out and question with the startup how they are managing to do this very, very important part of the job in selling their ideas. But what you gave actually was very, very good advice. You can't always be very, very good at uh, uh, at everything. 
on the technology side, I'm, I would get, call myself C plus, a C plus person. But on the selling and fundraising, I'm an A plus person. So therefore, I have done best when I actually work with people who are A plus on their side. So if you are supporting your family, if you are giving money and investing, question those people. Question how they market and promote and how they understand. Ask them, what's their go-to-market strategy? What's your go-to-market strategy? We're really hoping that uh, we have the benefit of being a friendly entrant to this hearing care space. So in the past, there's been a, a hard time for companies that are making new hearing aids to enter this space, things like hearing aids that have advanced technologies. And in large part, this is because there's five large hearing aid groups that have a monopoly on this space. And and they have a very long-standing connections with the hearing care networks that are prescribing this technology. And there's a large motivation for people to keep that system the way it is. Um, where our technology differs is that our mechanism of action is complementary to hearing aids. So by using Sharper Sense with a hearing aid, we believe that'll be the best way to restore youthful hearing. And in that way, we can help these hearing aid companies overcome issues like having their hearing aids returned because they don't work well enough in challenging situations. And because of that, then we're hopeful that we'll be warmly received in, by these hearing care clinics. And our- so can I, can I, the word hopeful, um, I'm just questioning that. What, what do you mean hopeful? I mean, is that, is that can we run our business on hope or whatever? What, what, what does hopeful mean? Yeah, that's a, that's a great uh, call out and, uh, on me there. And I would say I use hopeful because we have some early data that supports this. We've been doing a lot of interviews with different hearing care networks as well as ENTs. Um, we just had Professor Frank Lynn, who runs Johns Hopkins Hearing Health Center, uh, join our advisory board. And so I actually would say we're a little more than hopeful, uh, but we're not in those hearing care clinics centers yet, so we can't call that a win. Uh, but in general, uh, what we found is that mm, these ENTs that are doing this uh, treatment for hearing they're really interested in a new technology that can enhance the brain's ability to process auditory information because there really is nothing out there right now that works well for that task. There's something called auditory training where you basically can complete games either with a therapist or on a computer that force your mind to focus on different auditory information. Um, But that takes a lot of time and money before you see benefits. Okay. So you talked about building a team. Tell me about how do you build a team when you perhaps have got not very much money or no money. So tell me about how you built your team and the challenges and the good stories and the challenging stories with team members. Help us, you know, help our listeners uh, understand. Yeah, happy to talk about that, especially because we have a really great team. So uh, my co-founder is Professor Chi Wang. He runs the Neural Engineering Lab at Columbia and when we formed the company, we'd already been working together for over six years. So we had a really strong uh, ability to work together. And I think a lot of our success comes back to being able to very openly discuss things without uh, anyone bringing any personal feelings into anything. Because, uh, you know, strong science, just like strong company building, really requires you to pressure test every assumption. Uh, and from there, I was able to use the networks that we had through academia via Columbia and Cornell Tech to uh, start recruiting out a team. Um, early on, we were looking to build an advisory boards, both on the science and, and then one on the business front to 
fill in the information we don't have. Um, just sorry, sorry to interrupt. Just give a, again for people listening an advisory board. Just get, give an explanation of that because that'd be helpful. Yeah. So if you can think of an advisory board as a really a formal version of of mentors in a way. So and that's how we kind of built ours out. Is we had people that were very experienced leaders in the field that you know we found that the ones with the best intentions are always very willing to mentor for free. And then we'd get to some point in time where we'd say, hey, I need to know that I can call you every month. I can't go without your mentoring. Why don't we formalize this as an advisor situation? And, and then there's different things, but usually you give them a little bit of equity, oftentimes vested across years so that they have a commitment reason why to continue to talk to you. And this basically provides you a, a group that you can turn yeah, to. I, I just want to bring this to, again, bring to the attention you know, um, first of all, you made a really great suggestion when you said about that you've got somebody who's doing something good that you're not good at. Uh, and people, though, are very, you know, and again, the people who are listening, the people who are investing or think about doing this job, you can't build a big business on your own. It's highly unlikely any way that that will occur. So one of the issues where we're seeing is that people actually find it very hard to share their shares so they'll have 100% of the shares in their business or the whole business. And they think about how much money for the last two years they've given into it. And to give a percentage away is something that they found very difficult. So, and again, you was, when you mentioned about that, you would get somebody who's good at selling if you're not good at selling. Tell me about building that team, giving shares and how it made you feel, you know, and did you do it easily? I mean, it sounds like it did, but... Again, most people that we're looking at, a lot of the startups, this is causing you know the big squabbles. So if people are mentoring, and mentors are really great people to have, but after a while, and I know from my experience, when you're getting three calls a day, you still might be quite happy not to have any money, but you want to share with the future. So could you give us a bit of a, a feeling about how that experience has gone with your mentors and recruiting yeah, yeah. And I think that's always something uh, tricky. And there's one research, actually, uh, Osage University Partners, uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, they're a, one of the larger VCs. They have a great uh, resource. They made a deck. I think if you Google their name plus uh, splitting equity. It'll so what's the up. name again? Can you just say it? Osage, O-S-A-G-E is the okay. uh, venture partners. And if you put after that, uh, splitting equity, usually they're uh, presentation they have on that comes up. And that's a great reference because they've invested across a lot of different companies and they've used that data to understand what are, you know, generally usual amounts of equity to give away at different stages. And I think taking out that kind of uh, uncertainty in the equation makes things a lot smoother for everyone. Um, and then the other thing t is to make sure that you, you're doing it intelligently with things like vesting agreements so that, you know, when you hand out equity, someone isn't getting all of it up front. Oftentimes, they have to work for a whole year before they get any of it, which is called a cliff. And then, you know, the rest of it becomes slowly doled out over time. Um, and this makes sure that there's a reason for these advisors to stay around versus just giving them a bunch of equity up front and they could turn around and, and leave after that. How, how did you uh, recruit uh, advisors? Because, again, that's a very big challenge. I mean, obviously, you're in an... Uh you're in a very interesting environment. Not everybody is in, in, in you know, an environment like Cornell. How do you define these people? How, how have you found these people? How do you get rid of them? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, now I would say, um, you know, 
we did uh, what were a lot of different, let's say, early stage or free-to-play accelerators, things like Columbia's has a biomedical accelerator they call BiomedX. Uh, New York City's Economic Development Council has a thing they put on called Entrepreneurship Lab, eLab NYC. Um, those are great moments where we could come in as a very early company, mostly just an idea then, and start interacting with really experienced individuals in this space that were local to the New York area. Um, and through that, we made a lot of great connections. Uh, another website I'd really recommend if you're someone coming out of academia is Academic Venture Exchange, uh, AVX. Um, that is a site that's actually government-sponsored uh, to provide links between mentors and investors and startups, and it's all vetted. So uh, if there's bad feedback on the mentors, they get kicked out. Uh, same thing on the startups. And the only caveat is your startup has to be licensing uh, IP from a university to qualify. Um, but if you do qualify for it, that's a great program. Uh, we found three or four of our advisors through that. Tell me, what has been the most difficult part of your journey? What's been your worst moments and how have you dealt with those? Yeah. Uh, you, you know, a startup is very much like a roller coaster, which I think is uh, a cliche but saying, but very true. So, you know, there's time points when you feel on top of the world, when that uh, investment just wired in, or you see the new data coming off of your studies. And there's times when you feel uh, very stressed out when, you know, worried about budget for the next couple of months, or uh, you get bad news on uh, a negotiation that goes another way. So uh, it's really important to make sure that you don't over-index on those and remember to keep a even keel. What does over-index mean? Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm English. In, yeah, what I mean by that is that, you know, <laughs> when the times are good, don't celebrate too much. And when the times are bad, don't uh, be too hard on yourself and know that uh, this is a, something that's constantly changing and progressing over time. I think one of the hardest things for us, you know, looking back is when the brief moment of time when I went from having a salary in academia to spinning this company out and basically working without pay for a few months there before we were able to raise our first investment through the uh, NBC Sports Tech Accelerator. And, and I think that was the time of uncertainty in, had I started a journey that, you know, really was a correct path for me to go down, or had I fooled myself into thinking that there was uh, more here than there was just because I was so close to it. So getting some external validation that, uh, Others agree that what you're doing is very exciting and has a lot of potential. Once that comes in, I think that's a first uh, uh, nice relief. Yeah. I think that is another brilliant piece of advice, getting validation from, and from people who could be potential users as well, not just from your friends, but actually validation. That, that, and also looking at the competition out there. And it's quite amazing that people actually don't look that clearly at the competition and what's irresistible. And of course, you know, TIE, the irresistible entrepreneur, we're talking about what is irresistible. And all the programs that I do, as you know, is asking people what is irresistible about your product or service and what's the irresistible about investing in you. So what can I ask you that question? What is irresistible? Too tempting in the English dictionary, too tempting and too attractive to resist. What's the irresistible pitch about your you know, simple pitch about why people should invest with you? Yeah, I think, you know, at the end of the day, we unlock uh, human performance enhancement that otherwise isn't accessible. And that's something that 
people have been chasing since the dawn of time. And we do it in a way that's not invasive, doesn't produce side effects, um, and we can do it relatively inexpensively as well. So I think this combination presents a technology that's we think will be quite irresistible across multiple different applications. Right. So what has been the best moment of this journey? Well, apart uh, from meeting me and things like yeah, that. Yeah, no, besides I'm meeting you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But, I think probably uh, there's been a lot of different exciting points. Like I mentioned, you know, raising equities, uh, raising funding is always a good time. Uh, you know, getting into these programs like NBC Sports Tech or Cornell's Runway program that we've been able to interact with key opinion leaders, work with groups like NASCAR or U.S. Ski and Snowboard. That's been you know, amazingly exciting. Um, and I think most recently what's been really rewarding is now the original research I did at Columbia was all in animal models. And in the last couple of years, we've translated that research into human models. So actually getting to work with uh, human test subjects here and you know, seeing the data come back and with the clear, reliable benefit that we can drive, uh, that's probably been the most exciting thing as of late, uh, especially now that we've been transitioning from what I would say are more engineering-centric measures of sensory acuity um, to now ones that are more clinical relevant. So we're actually measuring uh, the amount of words people can understand over various levels of background noise. And so far, the data on that shows a significant enhancement. Okay. So the final, final question is, is that it is about building the team. So people obviously don't have any money when they start ups or they, they're supported or they've borrowed money or whatever. And you've talked about mentors. How could you, you know, and again, remember not everybody who's listening to this podcast is in an, in an academic world. What 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 advice about how to find mentors and how should you work with them? How do you actually work with a mentor? Yeah, yeah, and maybe I would also I can talk a little bit too about our employees as well. I, I got I yeah. realized I please do left off on mentors before. Um, first, I think you know a good way for mentors is to set a, a regular schedule. So depending on how often you want to interact, once a week, once a month. What I do is I have a monthly. Uh, standing meeting with one with our business advisory board and one with our science advisory board. And then I do more ad hoc meetings in between those with individual uh, advisors. Um, and then, you know, talking about recruiting the employee front. Uh, yeah, I agree that, you know, it's tough with the startup, right? We, we don't have the, even when we do have funding, we don't have the amount of funding like Facebook or Apple does to recruit, let's say, engineers. So there's a idea where you're not just recruiting someone for his skills like you would be or her skills like you would be in a company that's more commercial, but you're also recruiting someone that you think can share in this vision with you and yeah. who's motivated to go down this startup pathway with you. Um, I think, you know, our first full-time hire was Michael Gigo. And I mentioned that he's been a tremendous help. He's uh, has his PhD from NYU in, in neuroscience, specifically vision focused. Um, and it's taken over running our clinical studies here at Cornell. Um, and we took a long time to hire him, you, you know, a lot of interviews. And there was a point in time where I even went to our investors and I said, hey, I think we have some candidates that could fit, but they don't feel like the perfect one yet. Should we wait? And, you know, even if that takes a little bit more time and, and always emphatically, yeah. the investor said, yeah, wait. Make sure that you get the right person. Yeah, and that's another good point. Don't just take them on because you're a bit lonely as well sometimes. So, yeah, so that's turned out great for us. 
wonderful, wonderful. Um, the other thing just I wanted to touch on is what is next? What is next happening? Yeah, so it's a it's exciting time for us. As I, as I mentioned now, we're, we're moving from uh, testing in healthy adults to now testing in older adults, really getting this clinical data that will be so relevant. Um, but beyond that, we've now shown this technology does enhance sensory performance in humans. Right. So that's right. a huge milestone for us yeah. coming from animals. Yeah. And and with that, we'll be raising uh, more funding in the near future here already. Started our talks for this seed round. Um, and we'll be raising this funding to go from what is a, let's say, wired prototype in an experimental lab to this patch-based hardware that we can be manufacturing automatically on a line, um, as well as continue to prove out our science. In addition to testing in older adults, we'll also be testing in ADHD and esports, which are priority expansion applications. And all of this is really setting up uh, preparation for what will be a pivotal clinical trial. So okay. in parallel... Uh, 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 and what do you estimate the market value is? Of that first application? Yeah. In older adults? Yeah. So there's about... Uh, Two million older adults who are unsatisfied hearing aid users, and we think that represents over a billion dollar market alone there on the beachhead. When you expand out that earlier data from the CDC, that's about 70 million Americans who are struggling with speech and noise. And you know, even if these individuals are only using our technology once a week for a specific event that's very important to them, uh, if we're selling a patch at $10 a patch and they're using it 50 times a year, that's a $500 per user. Um, you can see compared to those music groups so, could be significant. So one, one slight criticism may, may, may I have, and uh, it, it's that when we talk to people from America, they talk about America, and, you know, there's some really shocking news that outside America there's a massive uh, world there. Uh, and the reason why I say that is when people ask what the market size is, you know, if they're in France or is in, you know, they'll talk about Europe or whatever, or they'll talk about their own countries. But America only talks about America. And one of the big questions that investors tell us they're interested in is how big is the worldwide market? So maybe that's uh, something to think about. Yeah, you know, that's that, a great that, point. And, and yeah. on that note, we, we and agree. And this is free. It's free. Yeah. Today's free. Yeah, no, we agree that... Uh, there's more to the world than just the United States. And, and Sharper Sense has filed uh, patents in places like the EU and, and Canada, as well as countries like uh, Japan, for example, where uh, taking care of the older generation is really a priority for them. Right. And we think they'll be very interested in this type well, of technology. Well, I think that's an amazing point. I've really, really enjoyed seeing you. I look forward to, well, I'll be in touch with you anyway as, as, as I come into Cornell, and I look forward to your great success. It's very, very exciting what you're doing. And, and on a personal point of view, I shall keep in touch because I think I might need some of your help. <laughs> you can use me as a test. Thank you. That sounds great. Uh, and it's been really wonderful uh, talking to you today. Have a great day. Thanks Thank for you. having me here. Have a great okay. day yourself. Bye. So, Larry, how was your conversation with Charles? Well, I have to tell you something, Andrew. I was a bit nervous because it's highly technical uh, 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 and really difficult. But uh, he was really, really good um, in explaining what, what, they, what they do and spoke in a language that was quite comprehensible. Having said that, it's a big challenge for these people um, who are so obsessed and passionate about their science to actually go and be good at the at the commercial side. And he was unusual because he was very commercial. 
Really? And I don't often... And the problem about the people who've got these brilliant ideas and great things, they're so passionate about it, but they're not passionate about selling it, selling the product, understanding a market. He was really, really good. So I enjoyed it very, very much. Really great. Well, I'm glad. Okay. Did it change your day around? Did you end up having a good day? <laughs> well, it's still throbbing, but yes, I'm fine. <laughs> That's fantastic news. So let me ask you this. With everything you heard today, would you invest? Well, he said things about that affected me, like family members who's on Ritalin and in the past and how that could be overcome. It talks about dementia, which I'm always very neurotic about, and, and how that can be helped. Hearing as well, how that can be helped. So I was quite excited, and, and I'm actually glad I can keep in touch with him. Yeah, I think I would... Think about it very strongly, investing. Oh, that's great. Um, Charles is a great guy. Yeah. Uh, I just want to thank you guys all for joining us today, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Okay. Have a great rest of your day. Bye. For more on me, Larry J. Gould, and the show, check out our website, our irresistible newsletter, and follow us on social media. 